And I'm alive and sober today by the very special grace of a loving God and the loving program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd uh, like to thank the committee for uh, asking us to come here. It's, uh, it's always a great privilege and a pleasure to be one of, one of these deals. And I don't know uh, why everybody gives Ray such a bad time. You know, somebody has been around as long as he has is filled with helpful hints. And I mean, he's just telling me a minute ago how to how to tell if he'd gotten in the old timers meeting by mistake. And I said, "Really? How's that?" And he said, "Well, if you leave your glass of water unattended very long, you find somebody's teeth in it." And I, I don't know why he gives the Al-Anons such a bad time. I have a great uh, deal of respect for the Al-Anons and their program of release and detachment. I, I, I heard of uh, one just recently, a black belt Al-Anon from... Uh, she's just, just completed her fifth degree. And uh, she was at home, you know, standing in her spot. When, uh, when her alcoholic came home, it was only five minutes after five, and he smashed. Just drunk as a hooty owl. And she said, where have you been? He said, well, he says, uh, I've been to the doctor. She said, you liar, you're just drunker than hell. He says, well, that was after the doctor. He said, I got some very bad news today. She said, really, what's that? He says, well, I, I'm not to live beyond tomorrow morning. And she said, well, that's too bad to hear that. Uh, what would you like to do on your last night? And he says, well, I'd just like to just go out and get, just continue getting drunk, just stay up all night and just raise cane. And she said, well, easy for you to say. You don't have to go to work in the morning. <laughs> you know, and I uh, got up Wednesday morning to uh, drive to the airport. Uh, I got up pretty early, uh, about 5 o'clock. Uh, plane was leaving at 8. And uh, I can I can do that today. I can uh, I can take time. Because time is really all we have, and it goes by so fast. And I I got to thinking about how different my life is today than it was a year ago, a year and a half ago. You see this this last year, year and a half has been the worst period of my entire life, drunk or sober. And that may become as uh, may come as rather discouraging news to a lot of you because uh, on April Fool's Day, which is a good day for me, uh, I celebrated my 19th, 19th year of sobriety, program of Alcoholics Now. And... Um, I only came for two weeks to get my doctor off my case. But what I found out in the last uh, year, year and a half, is that uh, the pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And that was a great thing to learn, and it took a long time. And uh, this year, just recently... Uh, my whole life has turned around one more time. And, uh, and we're starting over again. And uh, it seems like I've done that a lot all my life. But we can do that in Alcoholics Anonymous because we're given the tools. 
And I'm uh, often reminded of something that my daughter uh, asked me a long, long time ago. And I'd taken, to her, taken her to a little park, and, uh, and I'd put her on the carousel, you know, the merry-go-round. And, uh, and she said, Daddy, why do you always put me on the big horse on the outside? It goes so fast, and I get frightened. And I said, well, because that's where life is, out there on the edge. That's where I've spent all my life, out there on the edge. And I said, you see, the reason I put you on the outside is so that you'll find out a couple of things. You'll find out that it's okay to be afraid because everything's going to be all right. But you'll find out that out there on the edge is where it happens. It's the only place where you get a chance to grab the brass ring. See, there's only three kinds of people in this life. They're the observers of life. They're home right now watching television one more time. They sit on the inside of the carousel where there's no motion, nothing upsets them, and they watch everything go on around them, always wishing why they, that they could be a part of it, watching other people having fun, getting the goodies out of life. They're the observers. You never see them. Then there's the critics of life. <laughs> They're in the bars this afternoon. <laughs> They're not employed either. Same. And they're uh, sharing these uh, intimate things in their life with other people that they don't know. <laughs> and criticizing everything in life. But the real participants in life, the real ones, they're here, right in this room today. You're the ones that make it move. You're the shakers. See? You're the ones that, that come to a deal like this to, to maybe get one idea one more time that we got a deal here that really works something that you can take with you maybe just for tomorrow make it a part of you and you're the participants in life and so i congratulate every one of you you're the winners you're the ones that it's all about so as i was driving over to pick up joyce uh, and i'd like to introduce joyce to you she's a very special lady in my life today would you stand up, Jeff? As I was driving over to pick her up to come to this deal, I was reflecting about how everything has changed. You see, a year and a half ago, I separated from my wife of 16 years or 17 years. And my little daughter and, uh, and my wife are living down in uh, San Diego now. And that was a big emotional trauma. And it took a long time to come to the decision that that was what I had to do to survive. Because pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And there are many things that I can change. And I really think that I understand the serenity prayer. And I don't believe many people really do. Most people think that that prayer is a prayer for serenity. Hmm. Actually, if you're an alcoholic, you should never pray for serenity because... The first time that you wake up 100% serene, you will swear you are in a suicidal depression. <laughs> I mean, I, I got to tell you, folks, serenity is nothing. Nothing is going on with serenity. See, your arm is serene right now, and you don't even know it's hanging there from your shoulder. But if you'd like to know the difference, why well, go slam it in one of those doors back there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, 
That prayer is a prayer for pain. It tells me to ask God to supply the pain that's necessary by taking the steps, by going through the process, see, so that after having done all of that, I can then pray for the courage to change what I now know I can change, or the, or the serenity to accept what I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I have no way of changing. There's many things that I can change. And so it's because of the program that I'm able to do those things. And a year and a half ago, I had a six-figure income job cave in, and I had no control over that. And then I've had to make a number of geographic moves and move from a nice home in Palos Verdes down to a little apartment in Culver City. And I look around at, at my peers that are getting ready to retire, <laughs> and I'm getting ready to climb back on that horse on the outside of the carousel where it happens, out on the edge one more time and start over. But because of you people and the magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, I can do that. And I have to report that all through all of this in this last period of my sobriety, there have only been a couple of very brief periods of what I would term mild anxiety. No fear at all. And that's not the way it was uh, most of my life. See, I was born an alcoholic, and the reason I know that is the first word my mother said was, my God, you see how much he drank? <laughs> and I was only about five minutes old. And that's all I heard for the next uh, 39 years. <laughs> Why do you drink so much? Oh, is there more? Hmm. <laughs> see, I, I drank... <clears throat> like a pig I just loved it I loved everything about it now I don't understand people that stand at these podiums and say things like well I didn't like the smell of it and I didn't like the taste of it I even loved the smell of those bars the next morning at six yeah that's a sign of a real professional and I don't understand social drinkers I really don't believe they should be allowed to drink I often think about that part of uh, chapter 3, more about alcoholism, when it says, or it says something like, Medical science has not yet found a way to turn alcoholics of our type into normal drinkers. I suspect that they're talking about social drinkers, and I'm looking forward to the day that they invent the pill. It'll make me a social drinker. And then I'm going to wonder, one pill will make me social. <laughs> I'll have a six-pack. Or I only want to be a social drinker for one evening, you know. I mean, that's true insanity. Social drinking. I had a secretary for a long, long time that was a social drinker. She was a social wino. And we'd go to lunch and she'd say, you know, I think I feel like a glass of wine. I'd say, why? I always felt like one. She'd say, oh, don't start that again. And then she'd sit there, God, she'd just drink half of it. I could just see it evaporating. <laughs> you know, she'd say things like, oh, that has such a delightful bouquet. <laughs> the, only, uh, the only time I ever had a chance to enjoy the bouquet was on its way back up. 
I said, for God's sake, why don't you drink the rest of it? It's just making me crazy. She said, oh, my dear, no, if I did, I might get dizzy. Right at the moment where it starts to do what it's designed to do, they quit. I said, listen, just get four or five of them lined up, just blast right through it, and you won't even know, know dizzy. You know, you get right, drink right through dizzy and off balance and embarrassed and puke and everything. Just go for it. She says, you're crazy. All my life I felt like an alien on a foreign planet and nobody had given me the brochure. When I found that booze, I didn't need one, I want to tell you. Alcohol became the vehicle that allowed me to do all of those things and go those places I was absolutely terrified of doing and terrified of going before I found alcohol. See, I'd have, I'd have sacrificed my life to keep you from finding out who this terrified little wimp was inside here. And I damn near made it. Yeah, I'm one of those alcoholics that went absolutely as far as you can possibly go on the runaway freight train of the terminal progressive disease of alcoholism. And I went one step further. Like I always did with everything. And if you don't identify with my story, then my story is the one you can have if you have to go out again. And I pray to God that you just don't have to do that. See, there's... Three prayers the old-timers gave me when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I'd like to pass those on to you right now. If you're new or even if you're old, it might help. The first one is that I just pray to God that you can keep coming back and listening to the music until you can understand the words. Listening to the music of alcoholics, maybe for the first time, able to laugh at themselves. The healing magic of the laughter and the love of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've seen help put back together broken and shattered people that no human power could have ever put back together. And the loving programs of Al-Anon and Alateen that I've seen put back together broken and shattered families and broken and shattered children never would have had a chance without you people. The second prayer, I just pray to God that you can just put your hand in ours and come with us. Because we've been there, see. We know the way, and it'll be okay. But hang on real tight and don't let go. Because if you let go, we're going to lose you. And we don't want to lose anybody. Not if we can help it. And the third prayer, the really tough one, the really hard one, is please pray God. Let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. All my life, I felt alone. And I never knew why. And it doesn't matter why today, because I've determined that knowing why is the booby prize of life. And yet we're schooled all our lives to find out why. Who cares? Unless it's going to change something, I really don't care about why. And more often than not, it isn't going to change anything. You know, I had an operation on my knee a couple of years ago from a an old skiing accident where some puke hit me going about 60 miles an hour and I couldn't get my legs stopped bending and so I determined that I procrastination time was over. I knew everything about that operation. I knew the diagnosis, the prognosis. I knew when that accident happened, how it happened, who was involved, when it happened, where it happened. 
and I knew everything about the process that they were going to be involved in in the orthoscopic surgery. And I have to promise you that knowing all of that intelligence did not help the pain one bit. I just got to lie there and hang on to my teddy bear and cry for three days. And so knowing why doesn't make any difference. But when I found alcohol, it did something that nothing else had ever done. I started drinking when I was 16 years old, and I drank for 23 years until I was 39 years old. And in the beginning, alcohol was very successful for me. It healed that God hole inside and allowed me to do all those things. At 16, why, I had a race car on the track behind a forged birth certificate. I cracked up a race car, rolled one over, and uh, broke my back. And the doctor told me I'd never walk again as long as I lived from the age of when I was 17 years old. And I made a decision between the quality and quantity of life. And I've done that a number of times. I think they're repairing the uh, people left over from last night's jazz concert. Found a few more of them. Behind alcohol, uh, I was asked to be a charter member of uh, the Mount Baldy Ski Patrol, one of the most dangerous mountains in, uh, in the world as far as I'm concerned. Used to kill six people a year as regulars, clockwork, social drinkers usually. And they'd have half a glass of wine and then fly off the backside of the mountain. About all you ever heard him say was, oops. You know, you'd never hear that out of an alky going over the backside of that mountain. You get a thousand foot free fall right into Victorville. All you'd hear from an alky is, downhill race, go for it. <laughs> I helped do the first article for Life magazine on scuba diving. I don't know how many of you have ever been under the ocean in scuba gear, but it's terrifying. We found out that if you can fill the tanks with 50% alcohol vapor, you can stand right on the deck of the ship and get euphoria of the deep. I learned years ago the difference between a hero and a coward. It's booze. Don't ever let anybody kid you. I learned how to fly airplanes drunk. At the age of 24, I was one of the youngest subdividers in Southern California. I was building over 200 houses a year, and already I was in the grip of the terminal progressive disease called alcoholism. And already, I was beginning to, beginning to get indications that I was bodily and different, mentally different than my fellows. My partner used to say to me, he said, My God, how can you drink those martinis at lunch? I'd just go to sleep. And I said, Well, a fellow like you just shouldn't drink. Then I started having occasional problems with the law. Not very often. I only got two drunk driving arrests in my uh, whole drinking and driving career. And I always thought if you're going to drive, drink. Face traffic with confidence. <laughs> I wish I'd had the intelligence of a guy I just heard recently who had a special photograph made of his driver's license and he had it made out of focus. <laughs> so the police officers would stop him, ask for his driver's license, look at it, they'd go like this. <laughs> You can go. <laughs> but I learned how to drive and drink like a professional. I learned this from an old friend of mine on the ski patrol. They're going up to Mammoth one time skiing, and I'd forgotten to bring my drinking and driving and passenger bottle, and my booze was up on top of the car inside the ski poles. I'd, drink, I'd invented the drinking man's ski pole. And uh, don't laugh. Each one will hold a pint. <laughs> never, never 
stray far away from your supply. That was my motto. I said, do you have anything to drink? I'm thirsty. And he said, sure. He handed me this tube out from under the dashboard. And I said, what the hell's that? I wanted to drink. Not an end of mine. He said, well, dummy, he said, just put that little pipe in your mouth there and uh, pull the windshield washer knob. <laughs> he kept a six-pack of cutty sock up in the windshield washer bag there, <laughs> right in front of the radiator where it'd stay nice and cool. I was busy when I, when I drove because I was building all these damn houses and I had a dictaphone in the car so I could dictate all this gibberish to my secretary and a telephone, a two-way radio, and I used to smoke. I quit smoking uh, due to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I stopped for three years, uh, uh, kind of like Ann, uh, stopped for three years when I was sober, about three years, and uh, then I too thought I could, uh, I thought a little light menthol after dinner wouldn't hurt. Maybe I'd be a social smoker. Right? <laughs> so eight million packs, and about thirteen years later, well, I quit again. I just quit in January, and uh, but in those days, I smoked a lot, four packs a day. And uh, so I was busy when I was driving. <laughs> and uh, I mean, my God, you got the cigarette, you know, and then you got to cover one eye so you know what lane is yours, and you. To watch the damn rearview mirror and, you know, and talk on the phone and, you know, all that stuff. So I developed this habit of driving in a particular fashion that worked out rather well. And what I would do, I would just rest my head on the door jam like that. Mm-hmm. And that way the cigarette ashes would kind of drool away. You rearview mirrors right there, you know, you kind of tuck the telephone up under your shoulder like that. You know, you have this little pipe hanging out of the other side of your mouth and you get a little battery charge there every once in a while and you feel your liquid level going down a little bit, you know. The only problem that you have in that posture, I must warn you if any of your friends are out driving that way, is you must be eternally vigilant, remembering always that your lane is the one on the bottom. <laughs> so the first drunk driving arrest that I ever got, uh, I'd run away from home to get married when I was about 30, and uh, <laughs> I know a good thing when I have it. And some friends of mine gave me a stag party down at one of those beautiful yachts in Newport, and uh, they were serving my favorite drink that day, booze. <laughs> and so I was a little drunky poo on the way home there, and so I was driving in my usual posture. I was driving a little uh, 56 Thunderbird convertible. It had two tops at one time, but uh, it was permanently converted at this point. The way that happens is you get chilly and decide to put the top up, and you're going 90. <laughs> but we in Alcoholics Anonymous also no release. <laughs> and when the top left, I just said, oh, well. <laughs> Got another one at home. <laughs> you know. So I was driving along with my head down like this, you know, and I was clear over on the right-hand side of the freeway there, minding my own business in the dirt. And... Uh, going about five miles an hour. So when the police stopped me, I was quite surprised. And uh, I remember I looked up this officer and I said, why'd you stop me, officer? And he said, well, we don't like to uh, have people trying to make movies on the freeway and uh, we thought maybe you were filming a rerun of Wagon Train. And then he did what I consider to be a very unfair thing. He opened the door. I fell out. 
And when they don't even give you a chance to take a sobriety test, that's, I think that's quite unfair. And I've become a professional at passing sobriety tests. I want to tell you, I loved them. God, I mean, if you drive all the way to Mammoth from Los Angeles, that's at least a two-fifth drive. And this is on a Friday evening. By the time you get there, why, it's six o'clock in the morning and you're smoked, right? And you're weaving into the parking lot there and you're so drunk you can't even walk and you fall out of the car and some Eleanor's been lurking in the snowbank <laughs> waiting for you all night. And she escorts you into the warming up hut to get tuned up for the day. Take care of you, rescue, repair, and save. They love to do that, you know. And, um... So you get tuned up there on a half a gallon of Grenache Rosé. And at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, you find yourself at the top of the mountain. Some nut has, has nailed a number to your chest, and you're entered in a downhill race. <laughs> and somehow you're able to negotiate those gates and get through the finish gate without wiping out the entire mountain. And this cop wants me to stand on one foot, put my head back, and touch a nose the size of mine. Are you kidding? What a piece of cake. I got stopped by this one police officer in Beverly Hills one time. By this time, I had an alcoholic car. And um, if you're new on the program, you want to get that patched up because the police have been notified that the drivers of these cars are quite suspect. And uh, you've seen them. Mine was long and thin. And it got that way from parking in narrow garages at high speeds. And then the exhaust pipe, lots of times, is dragging on the ground. That should be wired up with an old coat hanger. And uh, and then they have the license plates just hanging there by one bolt. And has last year's registration on it. And the ones I really love are the ones that have the red cellophane for the taillights. Now they got red backup lights. You don't know if those mothers are coming or going. And then they get these curious little dents all over these whiskey bumps. Particularly on top. I found out that that's from trying to open them when their keys are locked inside. Mine had a curious character defect. The left headlight looked straight down. And that was kind of zippy because that allowed me to see the double line better when it got foggy. Every night about 10 when the traffic cleared. So I was driving along in my defective little car there and the police officer stopped me and, and he always asked you this dumb question. And they know the answer to the question. They give them the answer so they can pass the police test. Yeah. First of all, he makes this statement to impress you with how intelligent he is. And he says, your headlight is out of focus. Are you kidding? It's shining on his foot. What a hell of an observation. And then he gets this incredulous look of disbelief on his little face and he says, and you've been drinking, haven't you? Like, I'm going to answer him truthfully. I said, well, I don't know. He says, how much have you had to drink? He's heard the same bloody answers a million times, two beers. I mean, this, we have an incredibly difficult problem in Alcoholics Anonymous when we first get here with honesty, because lying works. I mean, do you think for one minute that I was going to tell that judge in San Diego the truth? When he looked down at me and he said, Mr. Harbach, I, I would like you to explain to the people of this court and the members of this jury why you were going 87 miles an hour on the Coronado Ferry. <laughs> I hold the land world speed record for Coronado Ferry. 
Well, it's real simple, Your Honor. Uh, first of all, I'm an alcoholic. I was just drunk out of my mind that night. Actually, we were going duck hunting in Barrett Lake, and I don't know how the hell you get to Barrett Lake on the damn Coronado Ferry. But besides that, I was in a blackout, so I didn't know where I was. And all of a sudden, I came to, and there was a couple of things happening there. A green light flashing and a horn honking. I'm a former race car driver, and I only know three things to do in a case like that. Just ram the accelerator all the way through the firewall, slide your left foot off the clutch, and hang on, baby. <laughs> ah, little piles of burning rubber along that hardwood. God, it looked neat, you know. When the red light came on, I turned to the man. I said, did we win? He said, you sure did. He said, just sign here. Press hard. There's three copies. <laughs> Besides that, Your Honor, I really don't give a damn. I'm a scoff law. I have no regard for people, places, or things, and especially your property. You know, they'd still be piping sunlight to me. <laughs> and yet every word of that was the truth. I simply looked at the judge and I said, well, Your Honor, I have a certificate here from a certified garage stipulating the fact that the character defect in my automobile which was the proximate cause of this disastrous thing which was an ex defective accelerator cable has been repaired to the satisfaction of the highway patrol and I can assure the court members of this jury that it will never happen again <laughs> right, what could the poor man say you know dismissed so you think I'm going to tell this cop when he says, how much have you had to drink? Uh, tell him, sure. Oh, I just polished off a six-pack of Cuddy Sark and uh, found my way home with a six-pack of beer here. And two beers. He says, I'm going to give you a sobriety test. God, I was so excited. I opened the door so hard that when he th stopped me the next night, I thought I was a different cop. He was talking in a falsetto. <laughs> and he does this nose thing, you know, and then he says, walk that white line. And I said, what light white line? And he committed a cardinal error and he pointed his foot and he says, that line starting right there. I said, fine. <laughs> Start right out on the instep of his right foot. I, mean, I want to tell you, when he stopped me the next night, he was incensed. You haven't gotten that light fixed yet. I said, what light? I thought it was a different car. You know damn well what light. You've been breaking again. Little vein on his forehead jumping in and out. Everybody's vein jumped in and out after they talked to me five minutes. Gave me a ticket for the headlight. Ruined a whole day of drinking. Yeah. The only other drunk driving arrest I got was uh, seven years later. And that happened because I took a geographic. I didn't know I was doing that. I went back to Missouri for three or four years. And Missouri is no longer on my map of the United States. <laughs> this is Los Angeles, Aspen, Colorado, and the East Coast, that's all. And uh, I'd been to Glendale, which is tacky enough, and... Uh, been to a cocktail party, lasted until two in the morning. I remember I left the house at, left the people's house at two o'clock in the morning. I had to drive very fast to get home before I passed out. And uh, I'd been driving about a hundred miles an hour for an hour when the gumball machine came on and I pulled over and it's three a.m. I, you know, and so I looked up at the police officer. I'm still driving like this. Uh, Hi, officer. I said, give me a little break. I'm only a couple of blocks from home. He says, where do you live? I said, I don't know. You have my driver's license. <laughs> and then he opened the door. I fell out again. Finally, one night I decided that I was just going to end it all. I came home and there was the animal in the entry hall mirror one more time. And so I thought, you know, it's just beyond any hope by this time. I'm just going to go upstairs and kill myself. 
So I went upstairs and I dug a 45 automatic out from underneath the pillow. I kept it there because they were after me. And you don't have to be paranoid to know they're after you. I qualified expert with a 45. I hit what I aim at and I jacked a shell in the chamber, took dead aim between my eyes and blew a $90 mirror off the wall. That's not so bad, but the next day you've got to repair the whole damn thing. God, they'd put these 45 caliber moth holes through my tenant's wardrobe from one end to the other. Besides that, scared him so bad he ran out and joined AA six years later. <laughs> so I decided I'd go to a psychiatrist. And, and I really wish you people would stop going to psychiatrists. I, I've determined that you people are the reason that psychiatrists have the highest suicide rate of any professional. <laughs> well, I developed this little nervous tick at work, you know, and it, right in the middle of signing something, my pen would fly across the room. That's nervous. And I knew then that I had to go to lunch. Because if I didn't go to lunch now, I was going to fly across the room, you know. And that's when the whole scenario starts, right there at lunch. You get in that bar, you know, the bartender comes up and he says, what do you have, right? Look at your watch. only has one hand on it. It's an alcoholic watch. So i got time for one martini. Make it a double, put it in an old-fashioned glass, leave out the ice. Uh, right? Finally, he brings it in your face with your first dilemma of the day. How to get it in your face without drowning this brain surgeon next to you. Finally, through a system of geometric confusion like crank it down. Say your first three prayers of the day, right? God, I hope it stays down. God, I hope it works. God, I wish he'd get back. I don't know why they're so interminably slow. Finally, he gets back. He says, you have time for one more? Look at your watch. Hand hasn't moved. Yes, I guess I have time for just one more. I'm making a triple. And then finally, he comes back and you get that baby down and, and that's when it happens. You know, that's when the magic of alcohol really happens. And that cloud of impending doom begins to dissipate, and that God hole begins to heal up, and that hand that couldn't hold a pen a moment before is just as solid as a rock. And you, and you look in that perfectly synchronized reflection of yourself in the back bar mirror, huh? Clint Eastwood, you devil. <laughs> and some Alanon says, Why do you drink? Are you kidding? Huh? Are you kidding? You know, John McQueenie and, uh, and Charlie from Little Rock, Arkansas, finally explained to me in language I could understand why I drank. It's because of the Twelve Promises in the big book. I don't know if you've heard them do this, but I, I like to do it. And I always give Joe and Charlie credit for it, because it's their deal. And I know a lot of you that have read the Twelve Promises on page 83 and 84 are thinking, is this guy crazy? He drank because of the Twelve Promises? Let me explain it to you, how they explain it. Sitting there in that bar after that triple, huh? Whenever I drank alcohol, I would know a new freedom and a new happiness. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would comprehend the word serenity and I would know peace. Whenever I drank alcohol, no matter how far down the scale I'd gone, I could see how my experience would benefit others. Whenever I drank alcohol, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my fellows. 
Whenever I drank alcohol, self-seeking would slip away. Whenever I drank alcohol, my whole attitude and outlook on life would change. Whenever I drank alcohol, fear of people and economic insecurity would leave me. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would suddenly realize that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. And isn't it a miracle that because of a magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, I can live within those 12 promises in my life today, almost all of the time, without ever having to add, whenever I drank alcohol, again. Not ever. And I didn't know that. When I came out of that last alcoholic blackout, and I was in St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And I looked up at my doctor, and he was crying, I could tell, because uh, he was getting me all wet. <laughs> and I said, why are you crying, Doc? He said, because, damn you, you've killed yourself. <laughs> Finally... I said, well, what killed me this time? Same thing, booze. You know, they're so dramatic. They're almost as dramatic as that psychiatrist that I went to. I didn't finish that, did I? He says, why are you nervous? And my mother did not raise a fool. I said, let me tell you, for $65 an hour, you're going to figure it out. <laughs> he said, well, do you drink? I said, sure, I'll have a scotch and water. <laughs> he said, that's not what I meant. He said, how much do you drink? I said, I'm not sure. How much do you have? He <laughs> says, that's not what I mean either. He says, have you drank all your life? I said, no, not yet. <laughs> the little vein on his forehead started jumping in and out. He says, well, do you dream? I had no problem with step two when I got here. I used to sit in those bars and think up dreams to talk to him about the next morning. $65 an hour. Finally, after a protracted length of time, he says, well, I don't think I can help you anymore. You better go to A&A. &A. <laughs> then he gives you a little bill there. You look at it. Oh, $35,000. No problem. You write him a little reader there for it. And bank calls him and tells, it, tell him, tells him it's no good, and he jumps out the window. <laughs> and they're very dramatic. Same thing as my doctor. He said, no, nah, my doctor said, he said, you got it all now. And I said, really? What's all? He said, well, you have alcoholic gastritis, cirrhosis of the liver. You have hemorrhagic pancreatitis. You know, I've ex broken and bent almost every bone in my body, and I have never experienced such exotic pain as pancreatitis. That hurt so bad you had to get out of bed to turn over. He says, besides that, you have two ulcers that are hemorrhaging. You're bleeding from every opening in your body, and your blood pressure is 60 over 40. For those of you that don't know what 60 over 40 is, that's serene. <laughs> Terminal serenity. And he said, we push seven pints of your blood and the bank's empty and that's the end of that tune and be signed. I said, oh, is there more? I was beginning to get interested because I determined by this time he was talking about me. And he said, yes. He said, if you don't promise me, you'll never drink again as long as you live. I won't even treat you. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Ten days later, I was back out on the street again and I was drunk. And he told me I had not to do that anymore. 
I came off that last trunk and I was sitting in the skid row of my very own design, which was the unfinished concrete basement of an old beat-up house, hanging on the side of a cliff in Silver Lake. And in my hour of direst need, I cried out to the God of my childhood, and he heard me. And the only word that I recall is the word remember. And I'd remembered. I remembered a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'd been to, and I can't recall where it was or when. I mean, I used to go to your meetings regularly, about once every two years. I kept going to the wrong meetings. I remember one meeting I went to, and I don't know where it was. It was in some old French Foreign Legion hall somewhere, and nobody paid the bill. And everybody was old there, too. And God, some of you were 40. And all lined up around the side of the room with your head in your hands, and nobody paid the light bill. It was dim. And Oh, my God. Finally, some skinny little broad was standing up there in the back of the microphone. I didn't know she was there for a long time. She just turned sideways. And... Finally, she turned around, and I thought, my heavens, she is a sick woman. That'd be like making love to a gunny sock full of antlers. And she said something like, if you want what we have. I thought, honey, if you got anything, hang on to it. Then I went to the big Malibu meeting on Saturday night. The only problem is I went on Friday night. I went with a drunk. It used to be in the old sheriff's station in Malibu, and the sheriffs were so excited to see us there, they wanted to keep us until Saturday night. We convinced them we'd walked. He said, I think you're chippying around with this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I think that... Uh, he says, I don't think you're ready to surrender and satisfy the admonition laid down in chapter 3, which says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we are alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And he said, I think you're going to have to go out and get drunk some more until you can surrender. But he said, I'd like to tell you something. He said, I pray to God that when you finally reach a bottom, which is necessary for each one of us, and it's different for everyone. A bottom either mentally or emotionally or physically or financially or socially or spiritually, beneath which you cannot go. He said, I pray to God that you remember a magic place where you can come, where he said, I absolutely promise you that you can find a way of living your life comfortably with unsolved problems, without ever having to drink again as long as you live. And where you will meet people that will end up meaning more to you than the members of your very own family. Because when you need these people, no matter how long the day or dark the night, they'll be there. And they'll be there just for you. And they'll be there for only one reason, because they care. And they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And in this magic place, he said, I promise you, you can find a God of your very own that you can take with you wherever you go, so you need never be alone again as long as you live in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I came back to a little park on Roxbury in Beverly Hills, where I grew up and used to play as a kid. And that's where I found the old-timers with 20 and 30 years that walked the walk of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and it seemed to me they wore their sobriety like a crown. And they were doing the one thing I'd wanted to do all my life. They were just stepping out easy. But they were doing it without taking any mind-altering chemicals or drinking any alcohol of any kind. And somehow in the madness of insanity that was to be mine for a long time, I wanted what they had. And I came back. That night when I left that meeting, it was April Fool's Day of 1968. And as I left that meeting, my loving God looked down on me and he removed the obsession to drink alcohol from me forever, never to be returned. And I believe I know just a little bit, in part, why that happened that night. Our book tells us that that happens to about half of us. And if it has not happened yet, I pray to God that you can hurry on with the program so that that obsession will be removed before the test comes. And the test will come because it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the test says this. It says there will come a time in the life of every alcoholic where there will be no mental defense against taking the first drink. But it goes on to say that at that moment, my sobriety will be contingent upon my spiritual condition. And it goes on to define my spiritual condition by saying that if I am just trying to do two things in my daily affairs, so if I am just trying to practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my daily affairs, and if I am just trying to keep my spiritual house in order, I need never fear drinking again as long as I live. You may add one day at a time if you wish. But there's two hooks in that statement. See, in order to do those two things, I have got to know what those principles are and have put them into practice in order to keep on practicing them. And I have got to have made some sort of attempt to have gotten my spiritual house in order in order to keep it in order. And that is what steps four through nine are all about. And I enjoy being at these big meetings in the Middle West and in the South because I hear so much about the program. And I, like Jim last night, am deeply afraid, deeply afraid of the dilution of our program because I hear things in these podiums, especially about California, where these gurus stand up there and spout this gibberish, and the newcomer hears them and believes them, and they drink, get drunk, and they die. I hear them say things like, well, all you have to do is just come to meetings and don't drink. Don't drink no matter what. Well, that's smacks of willpower to me. And uh, going to meetings is fine. And not drinking is fine. Until you come to a meeting drunk. Because the test has come along and you flunked. Because there's a dichotomy that occurs with meetings that I've observed. Meetings will not keep you sober. But if you don't go to meetings, you tend to get drunk. I don't understand that. And I hear them say things like, Well, I do step one, two, and three every day. And the newcomer hears them 
and they've been, quote, sober for a long time. And the newcomer thinks, well, all I have to do is step one, two, and three. And I don't even know what they're talking about, step one, two, and three. All I know is that what they've said is that they're getting ready to start to commence to begin, and they haven't done nothing. They haven't done a damn thing. It's like saying, well, I made a decision to cross the street ten years ago. I'm going to do it one of these days. So I finally, in the pain of, of dryness, of being dry only, I had to go to the old-timers to find out how this deal works. Because, you see, I'm an academic giant. And I have found that there is a direct correlation between a person's intelligence and their difficulty with the program. And those of us with vast intelligence read the white part of the book. And don't even do that. <laughs> and they seem to think that chapter five is entitled, Why It Works. And they told me how it works, and why it works, and when it works, and where it works, and who it works for. And they told me in no uncertain terms. They said, first of all, the program is between pages 1 and 164 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's all there is to it, and there isn't any more. And all the rest of the printed material, as far as I'm concerned, is just fringe benefits. They just invented the 12 by 12 for people that want to discuss the program instead of working it. And I believe that in the expansion of the program, it's been diluted. I listened to chapter, step 10 the other night in, in the 12 by 12, and uh, it just skirts all around it as far as I'm concerned and misses the guts of it. In fact, I don't know how you can have a big book discussion meeting. How can you... Well, tonight we're going to discuss the word all. Came willing to give up all of our old ideas. Yeah, the results will be nil. Now I got to tell you that unless you're an academic giant, a mathematical genius, a theoretical mathematician, you cannot do anything with zero. Right? Now they told me that um, the steps are divided into three parts. First three steps are becoming willing to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. The next six steps are how you do it. And the last three steps are how you keep it turned over for the rest of your life. And that's all there is to that deal. There ain't any more. And you can just get it as complicated as you want. In fact, I don't even know how to take step one and two. What are they talking about? I do step one every day. Really? Man, if you don't have enough evidence left in your life to where you still have to admit you're an alcoholic every day... In a year like you are in deep bandini. <laughs> and step two, I like the psychiatric definition of, uh, of sanity. It seemed to explain an awful lot about step two. That definition goes like this. Sanity is the maximum amount of honesty that any human being can acquire at any given point in their life. Therefore, 100% honesty equals 100% sanity. And that is why it's called a program of rigorous honesty. Because the more honest I become with myself, the more honest I can become with you and my God. And the more sane my behavior will become as a result of that. I no longer have the ability to rationalize my behavior. Rationalization, the definitions in the big book, 
is the invention of a socially acceptable excuse for socially unacceptable behavior. And that's insanity. See, I don't even know how to work step one and two. I don't know what they're talking about. Because my book says, right after that part of chapter five that you heard read today, made clear three pertinent ideas. See? The chapter of the agnostic, the description of the alcoholic, and our stories before and after made clear three pertinent ideas, right? A, that we're alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't would have ever sought. Not found, just sought. Next sentence says, being convinced of this, we're at step three. If you're not convinced, go get drunk. <laughs> go out there and get beat up some more by whatever it is that you do. To be hip slick and cool until, by God, you're convinced. And then you come back in here and you can still crawl and shazam, you're at step three. Easy? There's a softer, easier way. This magic book is a basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that because it says that on page one. And what this book is designed for, specifically and exactly, is several things. Number one, it's designed specifically and precisely to explain the exact nature of our disease so we'll know what we're dealing with. It's designed to show us that there is a solution. It is designed to plant us firmly on a path towards a power greater than ourselves, which is as promised that we will meet. It is designed specifically and exactly to place us firmly on a path towards a spiritual awakening, which is defined as a personality change sufficient to recover from the disease of alcoholism. It is designed specifically and exactly to convince us of those three ideas. Being convinced of this, we're at step three. Right after a guy asked me to sponsor him, we're on our knees and we do step three, whether he likes it or not. Because willingness is only exemplified by action. Guy says, well, I'm willing. How do I know? Do it. A lot of alcoholics don't want to leave a burning building until their whole room's on fire, you know. <laughs> I've been willing here for about an hour, but... Uh, get it heated up enough and, and go into action, right? Then, if you have the energy left to turn the page over twice, after all of that, after being convinced and saying that little prayer, you'll find at the top of the next page, it says something like, the experiences that we feel at this point will have little lasting effect. That's almost back to nil. <laughs> and then it tells you when to do step four. It says, unless followed at once, at once, by searching a fearless moral inventory. And I hear these people say, well now, I'm your sponsor and I don't think you should do your inventory for another three years because your feelings are liable to get hurt and you might get drunky poo. You know, what book are they reading? At once. How can you discuss that? And then, as you've heard from several of the other speakers, why it gets real simple. You just make a list of everybody you're pissed off at. <laughs> they use a big, long word called resentful. How long is that going to take? You write down, you know, I'm angry at my mommy. And then in the next column, you put down the reason why. Because she put me on the potty backwards. And then the third column, the effect that it had on some element of security, your physical security, your emotional security, your sexual security, your financial security, your social security. 
And then the reason, you know, and I know why mommy did that. She wanted to watch. Which points out my character defect. In the final column. And all those... All of those character defects, if they're finally crystallized and distilled down to their essence, they're all fear. All fear. And you make a list of your fears and you do the same thing with them. And you make a list of your, your sexual problems. And this is when, you know, small farm animals find their way into the inventories. And <laughs> finally, we find out that we're no different than anyone else. And... If everyone hasn't done it, they've all thought about it, and, you know, and, and we find out that we're only as sober as our deepest secrets, you know. And I, I hear some of these inventories, my God, I know, these vast autobiographies, you know, starting with the insemination of the egg in the womb, right? And they're done on word processors with spelling programs. I don't know. I hope they stay sober or get sober. You know, and then you go and share it with somebody. And hopefully this huckleberry you share it with read the book. Otherwise, they're liable to say something wonderful. Like, oh, that was so brave. Now burn it. That's unfortunate. Because a few pages later it says, referring to our list, which you've now burned. <laughs> guy from Malibu coming not too long ago. He says, I really like to do, uh, ready to start step uh, eight and nine. And I said, well, get your list out. He said, what list? He said, my sponsor told me to burn it. I said, well, referring to your list, which you now get to do over. And then after you share it with this guy, why? Or gal, when I come home and turn to uh, what I think is the most important page in the entire book. And the uh, first speaker alluded to it. Page 75. There are ten promises on that page. You'll only find nine. But there's ten. That's a little trap to get you to go look. <laughs> it's not the promises on 83 and 84. Page 75. Ten promises. It's the beginning of the whole deal. And I almost missed it. See, on page 75 it says that we're preparing an arch through which we'll walk a free person. I'm free today by the grace of God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It goes on to say that uh, if the obsession to drink alcohol has not been removed prior to this point, we will feel the fear of alcohol leaving us. The obsession will become removed. For God's sake, hurry on, lest the test come before you're ready. Huh? It goes on to say all fears will fall away. Can you believe that? Now you won't know that until sometime later on you screw up the courage to take the risk to do the one thing that absolutely terrified you and find out that that fear has been removed. Seven years on this DOI, I found myself looking down over the side of a 26-story building, something I'd never been able to do in my entire life because I have terminal acrophobia, fear of height. And all of a sudden I realized that that fear had been removed. Once again I could return to the mountains of my childhood and climb into those gondolas and those chairlifts with no fear of height. Only this time it was different because I could take my little daughter with me. She was only about seven or eight then. And uh, I remember the first time I uh, 
took her up on the big mountain. I'd had her in ski school because, see, there's no way that I can help a human being that I'm emotionally involved with. I'm an expert teacher, but I couldn't teach her. And finally she came to me and she said, Daddy, can I go up in the big mountain with you? And I asked her ski instructor if she could, and she said, Sure. And as we started up the chairlift, as we got further and further away from the lodge and we got higher and higher on the mountain, she began to get frightened and she started to cry. And I didn't have to say all those things to her that I hear people say to their kids, that I heard my parents yell at me, Stop crying! Big girls don't cry. It looks bad. You're embarrassing me. All I said was, you know, honey, it's okay to be afraid. And it's okay to cry, because it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And when I helped her off the chairlift at the top of the mountain, she looked up at me with her tear-stained little eyes and her fear-filled little face, and she said, Daddy, you just don't understand. She said, you're a great big professional, and I'm just a tiny little beginner. And that's when your words came to me, like they always do when the heat's on. And I looked down at her and I said, Honey, let's pretend we're going to play a little game. Just pretend like you have your hand in mine and come with me. Because I've been there. It'll be okay. And I am a professional. But hang on real tight and don't let go. Because if you let go, I'm going to lose you. And I don't want to ever lose you. And that's the way we went down the mountain all the way, my little daughter and I, never falling, clear to the bottom. When we got down to the bottom, she looked up at me with laughter in her eyes and sun in her face. And she said, Daddy, can we do it again? <laughs> Without you people... And a magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. I missed it all. A couple of years ago, I went back and got my pilot's license again, and I took my little daughter flying because she wanted to go flying. And, and I said, you know, you're going to fly the plane. She said, I am. And I said, yeah. She is about 13. She's 15 now. And it's hard, see, because I'm only 19. <laughs> and I have to remember that. And so I tell her that. I said, you know, I just look grown up. <laughs> she said, where are you going today, Daddy? And they say, well, I got my grown-up clothes on, and I'm going to go get in a grown-up car, and I guess I'm going to go out and try and act grown-up. And we laugh. As we started at the airport, why, she started to cry again. And I said, I know why you're crying. She looked up at me, and she says, yeah, but it's going to be okay, isn't it? <laughs> I said, yeah. And I'd uh, brought a cushion, and uh, I pulled the seat all the way up in the co-pilot's chair and uh, put her up on the uh, pillow so she could reach the controls. And we just got off the deck, and I handed the plane to her. Because it's easy. The only difficult part of flying is taking off and landing. We got about 2,000 feet over Catalina, and she looked at me, and she said, can uh, you take the plane? And I said, Sure. She got up on her knees and she took off her safety belt because she only needed it for landing and take, taxiing and takeoff. She got on her knees and put her arms around me and she said, Daddy, can I always be your co-pilot? And I almost missed the whole deal. But for you. And a magic program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Twelve years on this deal. Why? You asked me to be the opening night speaker at the Palm Springs Roundup on a Friday night. And I stood up in front of over 3,000 of you guys and you gals. And in one glorious instant, I realized that my God had removed all fear of people, places, and things from me, never to be returned. My God, what a gift. 
It's all yours. But you can't have it if you don't want it. You just can't have it. I wish to God I could just open up your head and drop it in. I can't do that. It goes on to say on that page that we will sense the nearness of God and we will feel as if we are on the broad highway with our Creator. You will have brushed the face of God. You will have established a conscious contact with a power greater than yourself. All right there on page 75 and six more promises if you want them. Hurry on with this deal. In step eight and nine, well, they're self-explanatory. But just remember that became willing to make amends satisfies the admonition of the step. And remember that it says, made direct amends wherever possible, not whenever. Wherever is a place. Whenever is a time. Get it right. It's simple. No, it all doesn't matter anyway because you see you're trapped in step ten for the rest of your life. Because the first three steps are becoming willing and the next six steps are how you do it. And the last three steps are how you keep it done the rest of your life. Remember that step ten is four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, all rolled up in one. And I hear these old-timers and some of the people that mimic and someone comes to them with their guts hanging out and they're all just torn to pieces. And they say, I don't know what to do. And one of these goofballs looks at him and says, well, just turn it over. So I know how to do that. I turned it over and then I took it back and then I turned it over and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what's going on. Well, just turn it over. You just, just work your program. You know, the next time one of those people asks you, you hear him say something like, you go up and ask him, how do you actually turn it over? And see if they can tell you. Because right? if you think you can do it with your mouth, you're dreaming and you're playing with the deal. Because when that pain came to me a year and a half ago, I had to get in here and I had to pick up that 900-pound pencil and I had to write about it. phone only weighs eight pounds. And I had to make a little package of it and then I had to share it with one of you and now it's not so heavy. And now I can become willing to take it to my God and ask him to help me with it. And every time I've done that, with whatever's causing me pain or bothering me, if it comes back, it doesn't come back as often, it doesn't last as long, and it doesn't have the power that it had before. But if it comes back, I just do it over and over until finally it's relegated to the scrap heap of serenity forever, never to be returned. And sometimes when I find myself tossing and turning at night and I can't sleep and that head won't shut down, I just turn beside my bed because there's always a pencil and a piece of paper right there. And I write about it, and then the head says, Well, I guess we can't go on. He's written it down now. <laughs> and that's how you turn it over. And that's the only way, because action is a magic word. Separated by a little word and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. Steps eight and nine. And so in step 10, I have the magic God-given tools that I dare not leave my home with any morning lest I need them during the day that are absolutely guaranteed to relieve me of any pain of shame, guilt, fear, or resentment in just exactly the distance measured from the pencil to the paper and a loving heart of Alcoholics Anonymous because my God is with me all the time. And I don't need the last half of that step much anymore because for me 
love is never having to say you're sorry. Now, what that means to me is that I love every one of you from the bottom of my heart to such an extent that I would never do or say the slightest thing that would harm any one of you intentionally in the least way. But not being perfect, if I should step on your foot in error, I have step eight and nine in the last half of step ten to take care of it immediately. And so this step allows me to live happy, joyous, and free with me and the God within, because I'm one of God's kids, practicing those principles. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve the conscious contact that you made somewhere back there between step 5 and 6 when you brushed the face of God, praying only for his will for us, my power to carry that out. Step 12, another promise comes true. Having had a spiritual awakening, which is defined as a character change, personality change sufficient to recover from the disease of alcoholism we tried to carry this message the message of how our personality changed to the alcoholic and practice these principles the principles of honesty open-mindedness and willingness because that's how it works in our daily affairs and humility i like the definition in the big book the willingness to become teachable it's so simple don't complicate it and so we're out of time, and I wish we weren't, because time is all we have, and it goes by so fast. Take time for yourself and for the God within. Take time to make the most important decision today that you will ever make in your entire life, no matter whether it's yes or no. Today is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Yeah. Yes, I want what they have. And I'm going to come back until I can find it. And don't leave, because if you leave, you'll leave just the day before the miracle happens. That's when they all leave. Just the day before the miracle was all ready to happen. And they left. And they never come back. So don't leave. And you won't have to come back. Or no, I guess I'm going to go out and, and try it on my own. Win, lose, or draw, it'll be the most important decision you ever make. But if you decide to stay, then I pray to God. I pray to God that you can keep coming back and listening to the music and hanging on to these people and letting them love you and find a sponsor and just take the steps. I don't know anything about working them. Just take them. And if you do these things that are in this magic book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I believe was written by God, you'll come away as I have, with all your questions answered, knowing who you are and where you're going. And maybe one day you'll get real lucky like I did. And I was standing in front of a mirror and I heard myself whisper just to myself, I love you. And in that moment, it moved the longest distance known to mankind, from the head to the heart, from academic to experiential. And I knew that I was sober, that I was happy, joyous, and free, one of God's kids, that I can now walk down the street with my head held high and my shoulders back once again, a youthful and decent human being. And maybe one day, why, I'll get real lucky and I'll be at a meeting and and maybe one of you newcomers will be standing up here. Maybe you'll be getting a cake because it'll be your birthday. 
celebrating one more year of sobriety. And if I get real lucky, why, I'll see a tear in your eye, and I'll, ha I'll hear a catch in your voice, and then I'll know. See, I'll know that somewhere along the way you brushed the face of God. Somewhere along the way you fell in love with a deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. Somewhere along the way you found your way, and the heavens became gentle somewhere along the way. Live every day as if it were your last. And love every moment of every day because there just isn't time to do anything else. I love you and thank you.